Okay, and uh, gosh, we're in Cheapside, so I might uh, see what happened to Christopher Marlowe later. But for now, I'm going to ask my latest victim to introduce herself and tell me why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who. Um, my name is Sarah Berger, and I played Rost in, I think it was called Attack of the Cybermen. It was Revenge called of the... <laughs> Attack of the Cybermen. <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's all of a much of a much. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so, well, I mean, it's just a... The tip of an iceberg of of, of a career. Mm. Um, so apologies for that, That's because right. it must be as a as a working actress that people, I'm sure, often talk to you about um, Doctor Who. Can you account for why it is that it's a program that attracts this level of interest? I think it's because it's the longest sort of most consistent program that we all grew up with. I mean, generation after generation have, you know... I mean, I remember hiding behind the sofa and and watching it when I was little. Um, And I think... So it sort of captured people's imagination. So it's woven into their lives in a strange sort of way, I think. I think that's why people are so sort of fascinated by it. Can you remember how it weaved its way into your life? How you? Well, I I can actually... I can remember being in a funny little house that we lived in in Surrey, and there was a monster that was made up of carpets, I think, in retrospect. It was some sort of caterpillar thing, um, and uh, we were absolutely petrified of it, and I must have been really very little. I mean, seven, eight, something like that. That's, um, and, uh, and strangely enough, my son's godmother uh, was married to one of the Doctor Who's as well, so I've got all sorts of kind of strange links with it other than um, having been in it myself and um, so were you when you were watching were you from a were you from a theatrical background how did you how did the profession of acting strike you um, no my father was an admiral and um, my mother was his wife um, I'm the first one to um, go into show business though my father <laughs> loved um, Shakespeare and acting and when he was at school he was he, he used to quote a lot of Shakespeare to me when I was little but of course he then uh, went off very young to fight in the Second World War and that put pay to anything and he remained in the services but I remember when I auditioned in the old days when he used to audition for a grant as well as for drama school and um, they said to me had I got any experience of costumes and so, so on and I said well I had grown up in a world where everybody wore some sort of version of fancy dress because of the uniforms and the, you know, the gold braid and everything, which is quite theatrical in a way, I suppose. But, but I don't know... I think that the, the thing that made me realise I wanted to be an actor was being in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs when I was at school. So I would have been about eight or nine. And I started off as a tree... And then I was upgraded to be one of the dwarfs. And then the girl who was playing the Wicked Witch um, was ill. And so I ended up playing the Wicked Witch. And I remember stepping onto the stage with a bath cap with pipe cleaners in it sticking out of my head. And matches uh, taped to my fingernails with green tape. And walking on and making one of those kind of (laughs) entrances. And thinking, oh yes, this is it. And that was it, basically. Never look back. Never look back. And um, so what about um, Doctor Who itself? You, you um, wearing a mask? Well, let's talk about getting the job, getting the job first before the, the, the pitfalls of it. Yes. So do you remember how you got the job? Don't. 
I just auditioned. I can't remember much about it. Sorry. Was was your part not the part that Koo Stark no. was originally? Was, no. that a, was that a different part? Sarah Green's part. Sarah Green's part was Koo Stark. Koo Stark uh, dropped out during uh, dress, uh, costume fittings. Took right. one look at the costume and thought, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you took one look at the costume and thought, all right then. <laughs> well, I, I just thought, well, you know, what a hoot, really. Um, yeah. Is, is there anything grand about doing... Uh, Ma- um, mask work of that type, you know. Do you, do you think your way into the mask, or is it just no? I just uh... no. It's just a horrible shock, really. <laughs> um, and the fact is that I'm nearly deaf in one ear, and we had ball caps over, uh, which went over both ears, and um, we were painted green and white underneath those masks. And then we, when they go, to, when you go to have the mask made, of course they put plaster of Paris all over your head and two straws up your nose so that you can breathe. It's quite a strange sensation. You have to close your eyes and so on. <laughs> and then they put the masks on us and of course there were distorting eye lenses to make our eyes look artificially big. They electronically distorted our voices. Um, but the thing that I really wasn't very keen on was the moustaches. <laughs> and when we got onto the set, which was um, a rockery, and there was a lot of dried ice. And the dried ice went up in between your face and the mask, of course. And we had false nails on. So you couldn't... I couldn't hear. You couldn't really see. And you couldn't feel your way around. And you were sewn into those outfits. You were sewn into the bottom ones. So you had to make sure that you didn't eat or drink too much. Because it was very difficult to sort of cope with that. Um, and we got onto this set. And I was being led around and so on. And I realised that when I breathed in... The, um, the bits of uh, iridescent material that made up moustaches would go into my mouth. And so I asked for the director to come down the floor and I said, yeah, I don't mind being deaf and blind and having to be led around. <laughs> but I really, really object to this moustache. So they trimmed it and I looked like Hitler. <laughs> so it was my own fault. <laughs> you should be women, but your beard's for yes, to yes. <laughs> Uh, and you, so you got you. I mean, did the things like because you, the, you, there's lots of movement in the parts. Did you guys work on that in yeah, rehearsals? Yeah, we did. I think it was because we were so sort of strange and we wanted to be feminine. And I can't remember now who how we developed it, but that whole thing of never sort of always moving our hands, so that we would be sort of these strange, almost plant-like um, creatures. And we did have an awful lot of fun in rehearsals. I mean, I remember being sent out for giggling um, <laughs> during it because Sarah Green and I just thought it was a, a, a riot, really. Um, and, of course, it's quite serious. It's taken terribly um, seriously. And it was a very distinguished cast, mm. actually, all sorts of really interesting people. And Faith had not been in a drama before, so she was very excited and quite sort of nervous. Um, it's an odd policy, isn't it? Because it's, it's, it has. It's got an uh, illustrious cast, but always with Doctor Who in the 80s, there's a sort of, you know, Royal Shakespeare companies working hand-in-hand hand with, um, you know, showbiz types. And Faith Brown and Sarah Green were both people who weren't really associated with acting. But no, I think Sarah they're both very... Had, Sarah had trained as an actress, mm-hmm. um, but had moved into the presenting world. And she replaced Koo Stark, who I don't think anybody would seriously um, <laughs> initially think of as an actress. Um, and at that time, of course, was a big cause celebrity. I never, mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't meet her. Um, she fell by the wayside long before um, we got sort of up and running. Um, so, yes, there, it is a strange mixture. And, I mean, 
I went on to go to the Royal Shakespeare Company, not as a result of being Ross for <laughs> Doctor Who, I don't think. Um, or was it, had I? No, I think you've been. I'd been or I'd already been. been. Yes, that's been, right. Yeah. No, I'd already been. And Julian, um, Julian, not Julian, Brian Glover. Brian Glover, yeah. Um, had also, um, you know, was associated with the RSC and so on. So, yeah, it was a mixture of classical actors and... Uh, but I thought that was great because it, it meant there was a kind of wit to it all and it was fun and it should be it should be fun as well as um, you know with a, a sort of underlying more sort of serious sci-fi edge I suppose and what about uh, your doctor Colin Baker well uh, uh, he was charming um, Nicola I'm still in touch with and she's a member of my club actually um, we'll talk about that yeah yeah so um, so yeah that's that's lovely that all those years later you know you sort of find people and so on but yes he was he was delightful i don't really have very much more <laughs> so okay world outside of you you'd just done like 84 85 at the rsc yeah that's right so um that must have been quite a heady time playing good parts for the most famous theatre company in the world yeah i mean i hit the ground running career wise because i was cast as abigail in, in the, the first yeah. british televised production of crucible while i was still at drama school and i mean in those days you went along and i interviewed and they sent me into another room to read the whole play and came in i had to read the whole part and they pretty much cast me on the spot and that kick-started me in a way that i didn't really appreciate at the time i you know, you don't know because no. you think that you've trained to be an actor and then you'll just go and be an actor. I didn't realise it was an enormous break. Um, thankfully, I didn't realise it. And then I went back to drama school, finished my course, and then started doing, you know, this and that. And But because of that, I came to the attention of the right sort of people. And um, I mean, I'm incredibly grateful for that time at the RSC because I did three separate years there. Um, so I did you know, I think it was 10 shows in total. And to, um, it was just the most brilliant apprenticeship, apart from anything else, because, you know, I was working with Daniel Massey, the late, great Emrys James, Gemma mm. Jones, um, uh, John Thor, Richard Griffiths. Uh, I mean, just amazing, amazing people. Emrys James had this late blossoming, didn't he, at the RSC, where he just suddenly played all those great parts. Oh, he and then... was such fun. He was so naughty. He was such, such, such fun. Um, yeah, I mean, that was the season I did at Stratford, where I was Olivia in Twelfth Night and all that. I mean, that was probably... Um, and that was an extraordinary bunch of people. John Thor was in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, um, he was um, Toby Belch. Toby Belch, yeah. And we were all in Henry VIII together and a play called Time of Your Life, William Sarampo. Um, yeah, and but also I suppose that for the rest of your career... There's a kind of bedrock of people that you knew because you've graduated from one of the best sort of acting crucibles, theatre crucibles in the world, I would say, probably, and certainly at that time. And to have been given the chance as a young actor to go in and cut your teeth and play proper parts and so on, again, that was, um, it was an exceptional opportunity. So how was it then being at drama school and, and having this part? It was M Michael Ann Harbour, wasn't it? Yes. And then, did Don Taylor direct yes. that? Yes, with Don, a whip. And Don, well, because he was quite a, he was an extraordinary sort of politically motivated director of a kind. He was a, a sort of Svengali. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was, I remember we, you know, I was, I went, I, I was, I was put up for it. I went for it. Um, and because I'd, I'd been, I can't remember why now, but I'd been spotted by an agent already. And so I already had an agent. And they had 
um, I think they put me up for it. And um, on the first day of rehearsals, um, with this incredible table of people, Peter Vaughan and Eric Porter and um, Anna Wing and all sorts of people, um, he made me stand up and said, you know, this is my discovery. Uh, before the reading, I thought, oh my God, you know. <laughs> I was just beside myself with fear. Um, but he was, he was very good and very patient. We shot it um, by the act with those big Dalek-like cameras, you mm. know, where they, the set moves behind you and so on. So. And then I went back to drama school where nobody was remotely impressed or interested. And that was the best thing that could have happened to me. Because, I again, I just thought, oh, well... That's nice, you know, that's good. And um, and now I've got to go back and play Cecily in The Importance of Being Earnest, whatever it was. <laughs> uh, but not realising, of course, that that meant that by the time I left, I already had a sort of major thing under my belt. But it was quite levelling in that um, I wasn't allowed to, um, you know, get a big head or um, get above my station. And was there... Uh, a delineation between theatre and television was it? Did, did you have that thing of going well? Do, do you know? Should I do more of this or the other? Did you have a career plan in that way? I had absolutely no career plan whatsoever. I just wanted to act. Um, I mean, I had I had a very interesting early career because I went I went to Southampton and did, did played Miranda in the Tempest, and then I went to the Chester Gateway and I was doing under Milkwood. And I was about to do a community tour about salt. And the crucible hadn't been shown because there was, the, in those days, there was a big delay. There was a, almost a year before it appeared. And somebody, somebody else, I think it was Jonathan Alteras, um, showed the video of the crucible to the director, Fred Zinnemann, film director. And I was bought out of my contract at Chester and brought down to London and spent three months with Mr. Zinnemann on a daily basis um, to see whether I, he, he wanted to cast me in a film um, called Five Days, One Summer, which was a film with Sean Connery. And they built a set for the screen tests in Pinewood, and Freddie Francis, the cinematographer, yeah. was the cameraman. Wow. And they flew over a Danish um, actor called Daniel Obritsky and a very young Christoph Lambert, who had never done anything, and we screen tested, and I had Hollywood people sitting me in a chair and walking around me and saying things like, you know, she's got a little dent in her nose, we'll break it and reset it, and all this was going on. And um, in the end, the American money man said, no, we want an American, and I didn't do it. Um, but it was an extraordinary, extraordinary time and experience and, and, and sort of learning curve, and it was the second, I suppose, big thing that taught me never to sort of put never to sort of trust in anything and that anything that comes your way is a result of extreme hard work and a bonus, really, rather than that it, there's an easy way to sort of, um, you know, take off career-wise and, and so on. So it was a kind of sort of interesting and bumpy. So whilst at the same time as being given these great opportunities, there were um, sort of huge blows, really. I mean, that was quite a blow. Yeah, I bet. I mean, that's the interesting thing when you and, and it certainly hit home to me doing this podcast where I've spoken to nearly two hundred people, and um, you know most acting careers don't end well in the sense that everyone peaks at some time. You that's never right. know when that peak is going to be, and some people peak at twenty, and some people don't peak till they're eighty if they stick it out. But um, 
It's a tough. It's a. It, it's a quite a cruel business, isn't it? Oh, it's horribly cruel. But it, but it's also, I think, enormous fun, and it's it's a great sort of adventure. And I think that. Um, I mean, I always describe myself as sort of hanging on to the rock face, an old pit pony to mix my metaphors. Who's hanging <laughs> on to the rock face, and I mean, it's partly what why I decided to do this thing that I've done, which is to start a big. The sort of movement, really, um, which in the form of an arts club, which now has 1,200 members in nine countries. And in the two years that it's been going, I've produced um, three festivals, a repertory season of new plays, 20 paid rehearsed readings, um, taken a play to New York, directed a play at the Millet-Sonning, which was developed through um, through my club. And the, the, the idea behind it is to help is to make, I started it because I wanted to make everything that I'd done in my career count for something. Um, and not just me, but all my contemporaries and my peers, because I thought, nobody loves a fairy when she's 40 and it's very boring that you fall off the face <laughs> of the earth just when you're really at your peak in terms of your abilities and so on. Um, so I, I thought, I'm going, to, I'm going to get off my pallet and walk and I'm going to do something and I, I'm going to enable other people to do it if we do it collectively. And it really does and has worked, actually. Um, so it's, it's come a huge, long way um, in, in yeah. two years. Um, but that's been, that must have been pretty full on. For, I mean, is, is, it, is it a bigger project than you anticipated when oh you God, yes. first started? I thought I was going to be doing um, little plays in people's garden sheds. Um, and, and now, of course, there's, it, it, it grew unbelievably quickly because there was such a need for it. Because of the whole thing of being able to take some sort of responsibility control for your own creative destiny, rather than saying, life's not fair and why aren't I working anymore? I just thought, well, then we would generate our own work then. But on a bigger scale, not just a bunch of friends in a pub doing something unpaid. Everybody's always paid something for everything that we do, including the readings. Better the BBC sometimes. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did a telly job, I wasn't paid, but that's a long yeah. story. Um, so, so, this need for it then, is that because of something inherently wrong with the business, or is that because of something wrong with the business as it is now? And if so, why do you think that is? Why do you I think, think it's? I think it's sort of cyclical, isn't it? Because actor-managers existed in the past, and I suppose that's the closest thing to what I personally am, not what I've set up, if you see what I mean. But that's because I'm, I'm about to do an acting job, I'm doing a new comedy in Sonning, and then I go back to Sonning to direct a play written by Nora Ephron, oh, yes. which is, and it's the British premiere of this play, um, very lovely play called Life, Love and What I Wore. Um, I'm, doing a, I'm directing a play at King's Head, which again I developed through the whole club, and I use people who are in the club to be in it so that I mean I would say I've probably generated paid work for conservatively 200 people in this wow. in the period of this time I mean we're not talking big bucks but we are talking paid yeah <laughs> um, but I think that what's happened is the industry has changed beyond recognition from when I started I mean I've been doing this for a long long time now and it's always been the case in a way that we've, uh, as performers, we've been the most passive people in, in the process. But now we can't afford to be anymore because the idea that you have some sort of career um, chart or path 
is a nonsense. It just doesn't doesn't work. I don't believe your agent can make any difference to um, what you may or may not do. And I think that we have to, you know, we have to generate it for ourselves, and we have to, and those of us who've been around the block a bit can help the newbies, and the newbies can help us because we need to learn how to use social media and all of those things that are there for us and free for us, and we need to somehow figure out this conundrum of paying artists because you'll know as well as I do that in real terms we are paid less and less and less and less, if at all. Well, we like it, so therefore we sh we should be prepared to do it for nothing. Is the is the attitude. seems to be the attitude, you know. Well, or, the next person who says that to me, I'm going to suggest that they tell their plumber that it's a real opportunity for them. They can put a picture of their tap <laughs> yeah. up on their website. Yeah. No, I mean we must be paid, um, and if it's not sustainable in the old way, then we have to find a new model to to do that. I I think. And so have you had to be a bit of a hustler? Have you had to go, go and get financial... Back? You know, is, is this a it's unfunded. New, is this a new... Right, OK. I mean, I, I, I was lucky enough to get an Arts Council grant for the repertory season um, so that I paid 23 people national minimum wage for um, eight weeks, which was in, no mean feat. Mm. Um, but no, yes, is the answer to your question. Um, but the, the great thing is that because it's not me... I walk in the door and 1,200 people walk in with me. I'm shameless about it now. And <laughs> um, are you discovering things about yourself you didn't know you had, or have you always been sort of this determined and proactive? No, I've, I, I've surprised myself. I started this whole thing by accident. I had no idea what I was doing, still don't. <clears throat> but I sort of feel as if I've sort of grown into my skin, in a way. And the thing that I try and say to other people is all there is the, the, there's no magic formula to this all you have to do is do what you say you're going to do you say you're going to do something and you figure out a way to do it but you don't go oh no that's too difficult to fall at first um, fence but also that for performers in particular taking responsibility for your own existence doesn't close doors so that people say oh but I'm an actor and I don't want to do that um but you can't wait for somebody else to ring you up and provide work all the time. You've got to go out and at least meet people or come to things. If you don't want to network, I hate that word, come and come sit next to somebody at a reading or something because all sorts of collaborations and jobs and so on come from, come from that. Mm. Um, but it's the idea that you're opening doors rather than closing them. You just, you've just got more doors open. So I'm an actress. Um, if somebody asks me what I am, that's the first thing that springs to mind because it's all my adult life, that's what I've done. But I'm also a director and a producer now. Um, and those, and that's, that's empowering, not disempowering. It's, 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 na it's not narrowing in, in, in any way. And when, but when you're directing, do you ever, do, do you miss the, the performance side of it? Do you, you know, when handing over your baby almost to, because the director is impotent once it's up and running in a way, once it's on stage, that, you know, yeah. you've, you've, you've handed it over. That's true, but I think it's, given the law of diminishing returns for actresses in particular, in terms of the parts you get to play, it's much more creatively interesting to be the boss. Yes, that's <laughs> very true. Than standing in the back of a shop, clutching a handbag and looking anxious. Yeah, which which is doesn't really light my fire. 
Has anything changed? I mean, I was talking to somebody yesterday and we were talking about the changing face of the profession for actors from ethnic minorities and um, my partner is a disabled actor and uh-huh. um, we have that argument of she says, you know, well, if, if a character's a wheelchair user, you should use a, uh, an actor who's a wheelchair user. Um, so there are all sorts of issues now that seem to certainly be at the forefront of the profession's thoughts and being a, a, a woman as well. So do you think things have changed, are changing, or are changing too slowly? I think slowly? it's for us to change it. Again, I, I think it's all very well saying that's not fair. Well, then do something about it. Um, you know, the whole Act for Change thing is a great initiative, I think. Um, the next festival that I'm doing, um, which will be a, um, a, another repertory season for plays, new writing, and um, the first one was called Hopeful because it was at the Hope Theatre. The second one will be here, and it's called Ever Hopeful. And it's, the emphasis is the stories of people over 40. Um, so I've already got pretty much four beautiful plays. There's a comedy, there's a love story of two people in their 60s. Um, there's a sort of heartbreaking thing of, about two people in their 70s, which encompasses death and so on. But it's, it's not all sort of Alzheimer's and, you know, it's, it's a real... Um, Broad range, and there's um, a play about Louise Brooks when she was 78. Oh, um, wow. Who she was taken in by a middle aged couple in New York. Um, this is all true. And she was, um, she was a sort of fierce, highly intelligent, rather difficult, interesting, funny woman. And uh, this play has been written by somebody who lives in Canada, actually. And so we're going to put that as part of it so that it's expanding the age range. Um, the last one we had play about um, Alzheimer's, we had a play about um, the sort of youth culture, um, the abuse in gang culture, um, we had a play about racism in, the, um, in America in the 1960s um, and the long road south and, and all of that. So there, there was, a, there was a, a, I was very proud that there were actors from 20 to 72 involved. There were mixed-race actors, there were black actors. Um, I try and find good parts for women all the time, and that is not playing somebody's girlfriend because you're 23 and gorgeous. Nothing wrong with that, but could we please have something that represents the stories of the vast majority of the population who don't fit into that um, particular remit? And the other thing I I have a real bee in my bonnet about is this word emerging, emerging talent. So I... I'm now a re-emerging talent. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's funny about what's known within the business. I was talking to a casting director the other day, and she said, oh, we've gone, for, gone for, for some unknowns for this part, and there's, there's this brilliant actor that, that we, you know, people won't have heard of, and he's amazing, Joseph Milson. And I went, Joseph oh, Milson's been around for years. God, I've, I've seen him play Hamlet. Yes. But he's, he's not an unknown. I mean, if that's an unknown actor, God help everybody else. Quite so. <laughs> Quite so, and could, much as I like the three people who play all of the parts over 40. Um, If somebody says to me, what about Helen Mirren, I'm going to point out to them she's nearly 70 and there's only one of her. You know, I mean, come on. Um, The the sort of invisibility of disabled people, um, middle-aged women in particular. I mean, it's hard for middle-aged men, but it's a hundred times harder for middle-aged women. And again, you know, you can bitch about that or you can say, okay... You think there's something interesting about this? Find something interesting. Put it on. There's an audience for it because 
um, there's huge, you know, sort of choosing power in that demographic. Well, everything's become almost bespoke now that you can, you, you know, you're not beholden to the whims of schedulers and what the benevolent TV people are putting on now. It's people go and actively seek That's what right. entertainment they want. Yes, because they can do it via the internet and, and so on. So the television is very different from the television that um, when you were making The Crucible and yeah. um, Inspector Calls with Bernard Hepton. And, yes, uh, and the late great Maggie Tyser. Yes, yes. So, I mean, do you... I mean, even the way of making television, a lot of that was multi-camera setups, and so different acting styles have had to evolve in terms of performance on television, have you found? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's basically the same, isn't it? Because acting is acting. I just think that if you're doing something on film, obviously, you'll look like a gargoyle if you use your face too much, you know. It's, but the, the thing that you do nothing is not true. It's just that you channel your energy differently, I think. But yes, of course, it looks different. It's much glossier and so on. But I would say, I would say that the, the actual um, content that is commissioned hasn't changed. They haven't caught up with it yet. Because... Um, it is still run by the same people it was always run by. Don't you think? Yes. <laughs> I mean, there was a wonderful laugh-out-loud thing that Channel 4 issued in response to the Act for Change thing. Have you seen this? No. And it says, all dramas will have a leading person who is either LGBT, or whatever it is, um, disabled, of an ethnic minority, um... And failing that, they will have at least one part played by, leading part played by a woman. And I thought, yeah, okay. So that's ludicrous because it depends on what the drama is. You can't just shoehorn people in. And it's tokenism at its absolute worst. And with regards to the part played by a woman, there is always one part played by a woman, one. And that woman will be in her 20s and um, a token girlfriend... Or if she's a mother, she'll be 20 years too young or 30 years too old for that part because no, nobody exists in them. It's, it's, it's not the way to deal with it. It's, it goes back to the writing of things, the product. Don't you think? I think, yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things that I, I, I think I'm trying to do with this club is to bypass the gatekeepers because it's levelling the playing field. And I'm sort of thrilled, really, that... I've got a couple of theatres who've joined and they join in the same way as everybody else. They pay their 30 quid to become a member. That's all it is. Um, but it means they're committed to it in a different sort of way. And they're on the same side as the feds. Casting directors, literary agents. Um, and that's producers, directors. So it's not just a load of people wanting work. It's a load of people who can come together and genuinely create work without having to go to a handful of people who talk that gobbledygook. Mm. It's very frustrating. Well, you've worked with some great directors. I'll wrap up shortly because I know your time is precious. But you've worked with some... Uh, and now that you are directing as yeah. well, what what is it that a good director brings out of an actor? And, what, and who are the directors that you've worked with that you think have actually, you know, helped you to shape your performances to be something that you hadn't maybe thought you'd be able to do? Or were better than, or you've got. To... I would say, the only name that springs to mind yeah. is Di Trevis. Okay. Um, and I did a production of The Dresser, 
yes. Um, the second time I've been here, the first time I was the young girl, last time I was her ladyship, with <laughs> Clive Francis, playing oh. sir. And she, because, because a lot of directors are men, and they tend to be slightly intimidated by old war horses like me, they just, they, they employ you because they think, well, we know she can do it and she'll come up with something and so on. So they don't tend to draw anything out of you that you didn't know you already had in your arsenal. But she wasn't having any of that. And it was fascinating because at, initially I was quite thrown by that because I just wasn't used to it. I'm not used to being directed. Um, and I had to give myself quite a stern talking to her. And I had the best time because I took risks and went to... I didn't do my shtick, really. You know, I didn't do what I... I was out of my comfort zone and that was great. That was really, really great. And I think a director's job is... Twofold, I think it's to have the confidence to see what your actors have to offer you, to draw that out and enable them. So it's not about you and your concept, it's about the living people in the, in the room, to orchestrate it so that everybody is in the same play, and to never let any of your performers not know why they're on stage at second to second. If they know why they're there, then they can make their own choices and so on as to how they interpret that. But you're giving them a proper s sort of skeleton, scaffold, on which to work. That's what I think a director should do. And uh, back to television for one last thing. You, yeah. I mean, you peaked... Uh, well, you didn't peak, but you started at, at, as, as high as you can go. Were, th were there any other peaks in the, in the television work that, of, of stuff that you were really satisfied with or that you just enjoyed doing? Yeah, I mean, I did a load of stuff. Mm. I mean, I had a very interesting time doing um, Fatherland out in Prague because all my scenes were with Rutger Hoyer. Yeah. Um, I had a great time doing The Green Man with Albert Finney. I remember that. I remember that very well. <laughs> that was such a, a, a hoot, the whole thing. Saw Nick Gross the other day, actually. And it was sold on the promise of a threesome. That, that was, the, that was the, 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 the famous threesome. Where I was wearing more clothes than I'm currently wearing, I have to say, because <laughs> I wouldn't take my clothes off. Um, and we, but we were given real champagne, so it's a miracle that any of us got through it. It was just... And we decided to play it comedically, um, which I think really worked. Linda Marlowe... I mean, who gets to be in bed with Linda Marlowe and Albert Finney in one fell swoop? <laughs> we made Albert go in the middle, and we were just hooting. It was very funny. Yeah. So, yes. I mean, there's been lots of interesting um, bits and bobs. Across. I mean, the first time I was in Casualty, I had to play um, the mother of a, a cop death. And that was quite um, sort of cataclysmic. And my son was very little at the time, and he had a little friend who lived down the road who the night that it was shown, ran down the road to our house, screaming and battering because I'd been crying on television and she'd believed it. Um, so just sort of funny little things like that, you know. I like acting on camera. It's, it's fascinating and you have to tell the truth in a way that you don't always have to on stage. Um, so, you know, I'd be sorry if I didn't do some more telly. Um, but I sort of don't live to do that. Well, here's to that. And uh, the, the final two questions. Thanks so much for this. You're welcome. Um, uh, what is your charity? Mind. Mind. Actually, can I make it rethink? Yeah. Um, because they're one that I support, one of the ones I support monthly. And it's to try and um, help, uh, partly to help people understand mental illness as much as to um, 
to, to do stuff and uh, that's something close to my heart lovely well, I'll do a link and um, well, this podcast started to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who and it's uh, it's it's developed a life of its own like the programme that spawned it but uh, <laughs> so, so what is your message to the listening Doctor Who fans out there uh, my message is um, on a really personal level how sort of um, charming it is that people still are interested and are right to you and stuff. After one episode of something years ago, I'm, I'm quite sort of touched by that, really. Um, and I have I haven't seen any of the new Doctor Who's David Tennant or anybody. I, I don't I don't watch it, <laughs> so um, don't tell them that. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> it's, it's not mandatory. It's not mandatory. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm I get to why people do, and I hope they continue to enjoy it. Well, Sarah Berger, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Bessie, thanks for that. That was great. You're welcome. Some really interesting stuff about the profession, you know, that's, that's the meeting. Thanks to Sarah. Uh, you can check out her club if you are of the uh, theatrical bent, uh, the so-and-so arts club. Uh, what a great uh, institution that has become. Uh, and I went to see the play that she was talking about, uh, that she directed, that by coincidence she cast a friend of mine in. Uh, very good. So um, do support Sarah in all her endeavours. Uh, her charity is rethink.org, which uh, is a charity whose goal is uh, for a better life for everyone affected by mental illness. So a very good cause. Donate to that if you can. Uh, Sarah is on Twitter, uh, as am I. Uh, so find us there. Uh, and until the next time, uh, enjoy whatever it is you enjoy doing. Thanks very much. And my thanks to Elton Townend-Jones for uh, brokering the deal and setting up that interview. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, A Life of Crime. So, this is how it's going to go down. Freddie and Frank, you'll be taking the mini-hovers down the promenade. Charlie, you wait for the signal. Then get the container truck moving. Then Freddie and Frank activate their gizmos. The signal goes out and we snarl up the whole city, all apart from Main Street. Charlie's taking us to Main Street, the security centre, right over the vault of the Bank of Ricosta. All that's left to do is break inside. That's where we are, is it? Ricosta? Yes, a retirement haven for certain types of business person. Don't tell me you've never heard of Lefty Lonigan, the most successful career criminal this sector has ever known. Right, that type of business person. Well, we have a job lined up that uh, you could be a good fit for. And why might you be needing help? Well, you see... I'm in rather a lot of trouble. Really? You don't look the type. So, you're saying you broke into my house to see if I need any help? In a roundabout way. So that's your plan, Doctor. Rob a bank and have me drive the getaway car. Help? You seem more like a hindrance to me. How quickly we've got to know one another. Big finish. We love stories.